Okay, we're continuing our summer series in Isaiah this morning, and we're finishing up a four-part mini-series within the book of Isaiah that we've been calling the Holy One of Israel. Christian took us through two weeks of uh, Isaiah chapter 6 and seeing uh, the holiness of God as Isaiah enters the throne room of heaven and sees God high and exalted and lifted up. Last week, we attempted to plumb the depths of God's sovereignty, his absolute and total power to accomplish his will in and through every single aspect of the entire universe. And our, our goal there and our goal always is to get a bigger view of God, to expand it out even further and see him as, as bigger and, and greater and gianter and huger than we think he is. All those words, right? And more. Today I want to focus on God's sovereignty over salvation. We'll mostly be in Isaiah, but we're going to be all over the place. I'll have most, if not all, the scripture on the screen. But uh, uh, I want to redefine sovereignty. We looked at this definition last week. I want to look at it again and then jump off from that to, to get into this study. God has the rightful authority, the freedom, the wisdom, and the power to bring about everything that he intends to happen. And therefore, everything he intends to come about does come about, which means God plans and governs all things. Now, in terms of salvation, God intends to save some, therefore, he will save some. He has the authority, he has the freedom, he has the wisdom, he has the power to bring about salvation to anyone he wants. We learn from Scripture that God's intent from eternity past was to set apart a people for himself. God has, has a created purpose for humanity, so he must save some to fulfill that purpose that he designed and he laid out. We see in the Gospel of John that the Father gave a number of people to the Son so the Son could save them. John 6.37 all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 1724, Father, I desire that they also, he, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. God is sovereign in giving these people to the Son so that he can save them, and we see the beginnings of God's sovereignty in salvation. Now, I don't know much about diamonds, but I do know that it's, I know they're expensive, I know that. I do know that a skillfully cut diamond has many and often complex facets that, that these geniuses that work in tiny little things can cut and shape. And I also know that diamonds are one of the most precious gemstones. So this morning, I'm just going to, just for fun, use this idea of facets to look at salvation. Salvation has many and often very complex facets a diamond is one of the most precious, or, or salvation is one of the most precious doctrines in Scripture, and it took someone eternally and sovereignly skilled to craft it together. So what, we, what we're going to do this morning is look at four facets of salvation, mostly from the book of Isaiah, and there are so many more than four, please understand, but we're going to look at these four. So one of the first facets of this salvation diamond is, is that there's a problem. I know that diamonds often have flaws, and there's a fatal flaw in humanity that affects God's plan of salvation. In the very beginning, God had perfect fellowship with Adam and Eve, 
but when they sinned, all humanity was plunged into sin, and that created a problem because sinful human beings could not have a relationship with the holy God. In our sin, in, 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 in a person's sin, to approach the holiness of God would mean instant vaporization. We just, we just can't be in the presence of a holy God. So this is a problem. Isaiah 59.2 speaks to it. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We're, we're, there, there's this separation. There's this gap. There's this chasm between us and God. And we cannot, uh, we cannot approach God. We cannot come together. Another problem is that we're helpless to do anything about this separation. We're not able to come to God in our own, in our, in our own sinful nature. We would never choose God in his path. We'll always choose our own selfish way. We are, we are rebels. Uh, we want to do things, I want to do things my way, and that's what we'll always do. Isaiah makes this helpless condition clear all through his book, but here's a few passages. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We all turn to our own way. Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And then Paul summarizes it so well in the book of Romans when he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one, none, none of us, nobody, got it? Nobody seeks after God on their own. We might know we need saved from something. We might know we need saved from ourselves or from that emptiness that's inside us, but we will look in all the wrong places apart from God taking the initiative to do something in our lives. And that's the next facet of God's plan and purpose to save some is that God must initiate salvation. And this is a very complex and beautiful facet of this doctrine of salvation. All through the Old Testament, people had to bring sacrifices to the temple and offer them on the altar. They had to initiate the sacrificial process. Those sacrifices that they brought never removed sin, never actually forgave sin. They simply covered sin, atonement. We talk about atonement, it just means to cover over sin. It it temporarily pushes back the penalty. But in Isaiah 6, as Christian showed us a few weeks ago, we see for the first time something coming from the altar to the people. The seraph takes a hot coal from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's lips with it, and his sin is atoned for. Isaiah 6, 6 and 7, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. The point is, God initiated this process in Isaiah 6, not Isaiah. Isaiah is cleansed not by his own initiative, but by the grace of God alone, initiated by God. Now, there's some implications that God initiates salvation that we need to see. First of all, we see that he 
is the one who softens hearts, and he is the one who hardens hearts. We saw a few weeks ago in Isaiah 6 that God called Isaiah to preach the truth, but God told Isaiah that when you preach it, it will harden people's hearts or it will confirm the hardness of their hearts. 6, 9, and 10. He said, go, say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Paul states the same truth 700 years later in Romans 11. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Isn't that a great word, stupor? I looked it up just for fun. It means near unconsciousness. God gave them a spirit of near unconsciousness, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And so God softens and God hardens. He says here, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And so we see this, this term of the elect, the ones that God softens. So, so if God hardens some hearts and God softens other hearts, it means he has to choose those whom he will harden and whom he will soften. And we can only come to Jesus if he chooses to soften our hearts and God puts within us the ability to respond to the gospel and does not harden our hearts. We don't come on our own initiative. We come because God softens our hearts and we respond to that call and we say yes and we come. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God is the one who does the drawing and the calling and the choosing. So God chooses those whom he will soften and draw to himself. It's not our initiative. It's his choice. It's his initiative. And this is probably most fully explained in Romans. And we can't talk about this without going to Romans 9. So, so this is a long passage. Let me read it with some comment, commentary. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, in order that God might choose those whom he's going to soften and choose those who's he, who, who he's going to harden, uh, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's not because Esau or Jacob were better or worse or smarter or dumber. Not because of works. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In other words, Jacob I chose, Esau I did not. Jacob I softened, Esau I did not. Now, we just got to stop for a second and acknowledge that this is hard. This doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. God chooses some and not others. He chose Jacob but didn't choose Esau. What's up with that? Uh, and if you were here last week, you know, we, we kind of plunged the depths and went into the stratosphere of difficult doctrine. Today we're going from the frying pan to the fire. So, so put your seatbelts on and hang on because this is, this is hard. This is hard truth. 
Paul expects that this is how people respond to what he just says. So in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul anticipates that people are going to respond and say, this is not fair. Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or what we often call free will. It depends not on human will or exertion or, or you know, attempting to do something, but on God. It depends on God. Let's elevate God. Let's exalt God. He is the one. God is the one who has mercy. We're going to skip verse 17 for now. So then he has mercy or he softens whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. So there it is, plain and simple, right? Good. Amen. Let's go home. It's not simple. I said this is a com very complex facet of this beautiful diamond. It's a doctrine that, let me just tell you right now, is impossible to fully comprehend. We'll debate it, we'll discuss it until Jesus comes back and takes us home, and we'll all go, oh, that's how it worked. We were all wrong, I think. This doctrine creates all kinds of logical and philosophical questions and issues about fairness and about on and on and on it goes. It's hard, it's mysterious, and we need to just be okay with the tension and the mystery of it. We need to accept it by faith. Without, without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. And we need to keep in mind that it's not about me because a lot, of our, a lot of our concerns with this is it's not fair to me or to us. And let me just say, and I'll say it a few times this morning, it's not about you. It's not about me. Are we okay with that? No. I want it to be about me. It's all about God. It's all about his glory and his wisdom and his purpose. And we, we are his created beings, and so he can do with this as he chooses. Let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into this and look at some of the implications. God is sovereign. We looked at that last week. It means he plans and governs all things. If you weren't here last week, go listen to the podcast. And then just don't send me too many emails. Oh, I already got some. Uh, and that's okay, because God, God will do whatever he wants with his created beings. And let me say this, short of doing evil, God does not make us do evil. A lot of what I heard this week was, it sounds like you said that. I didn't mean to say that. He is not sinful in any of his ways. Uh, the problem is we're trying to explain an unexplainable God we're trying to describe an indescribable God. We're trying to comprehend an incomprehensible God. Isn't that good? That triad, those three things there. Um, and, and we can't. And so we're going to swing too far and then go this way and then go this way and, and try to understand it. The point is, all of God's created beings, all of us as humans, are trapped in sin and we're headed for an eternity in the lake of fire. That's our destiny. And God has chosen to save some of those people from destruction. 
Now we can argue and we can kick and we can scream and we can hate this and we can blame God and we can question his goodness all we want, but Isaiah 45 gives us perspective. And I want to read this out of the New Living Translation because I just like the way it, 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 it's said here. Isaiah 45, 9, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? <laughs> Don't argue with God. It's not going to go well. Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does, it, does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim to the potter, how clumsy you can be? How terrible it would be if a newborn baby said to its father, why was I born? Maybe today on Father's Day, some of you dads will get that. Your kids will say, why in the world did you even have me? By the way, that's an honest question. And I hear people asking, why? I didn't ask to be created. Or if this baby said to its mother, why did you make me this way? This is what the Lord says. The Holy One of Israel and your creator. Listen to this. Do you question what I do for my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? I am the one who made the earth and created people to live in it. With my hands, I stretched out the heavens. All the stars are at my command. We saw last week that God knows all the stars personally. He has named them. He knows what's going on. And some would argue that there's an infinite number of stars. And God knows all their names, and he knows when they burn out. And he's saying, I stretched out the heavens. I created the stars. I made the earth. I created people to live on it, and I can do what I want with the people that I created. You okay with that? You don't have to answer. Well, it gets deeper and more mysterious. Let's plunge in. Paul suggests, man, I wish we could have a dialogue. I wish we could do a Q&A format instead of me just telling you and you sitting there and answer your questions. But that's not how this works. Uh, we'd be here all day. Paul suggests that part of the reason many people will not be saved is because that in some way, not saving some brings God glory. And remember, all of creation, all the universe, all of everything everywhere is for the purpose of bringing glory and honor and praise to God alone. And this is really hard. This is really difficult doctrine. But look at Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Let's unpack that a little bit. In other words, not saving some people demonstrates the glory of God's mercy by the fact that he does save some people. 
He must exercise his wrath so he can fully reveal his mercy. His mercy is far more precious when it's held up against the, the picture of his wrath. God gets glory by displaying his wrath and justice just as much as he gets glory by displaying his love and mercy. Therefore, there must be objects of his wrath and justice in the same way that there must be objects of his love and mercy. Follow? All of God's attributes are holy perfections. His wrath is a holy perfection. It's based on the fact that he is a holy God and cannot be near sin, and so his wrath, and don't think temper tantrum or, you know, throwing furniture and throwing dishes. That's not the kind of wrath we're talking about. It's a holy wrath that must respond to sinfulness. His wrath is a, is a holy perfection, so every exercise of God's wrath is perfectly holy. There is no sin in it. And again, he exercises his wrath so he can fully reveal his mercy. We see this in the life of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was raised up for the exclusive purpose, or seemingly the exclusive purpose, of defying God's plans so that God would be glorified in destroying Pharaoh. Paul in, in Romans 9 quotes Exodus 9, the verse we skipped earlier. Let's go back to it here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh was raised up for the purpose of resisting God's plan for Israel so that God could show his power and his might by destroying and defying Pharaoh. This is hard stuff. Many years ago, there was a group of us parents sitting around, I don't know what it was, a party or something, and we were discussing how much we wanted our kids to grow up and love Jesus. And what, what parent who loves Jesus doesn't want that for their kids? Personally, that was where Dawn and I were at. We didn't care if our kids went to a good college or got a good job. I mean, we want them to be able to survive, but that wasn't the priority. We wanted them to love Jesus. We felt like if they didn't, we had failed, and if they did, we had succeeded, which was wrong thinking, by the way. But as we were discussing this, one dad, he kind of dropped a bomb into the middle of the room when he said this, what if God chose your kids or my kids as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so that he gets the glory? What if God chooses our kids to glorify him in that way? Sucker punch, right there. As I process that, and I'm still processing that, you don't, you don't come to grips with that. 
But it made me realize that I was more concerned that my kids get saved and go to heaven than I was God getting glory any way he chooses. I don't know why God does it this way. The the why questions can't be answered. But I have to embrace it by faith. That's what Paul says. That's what the Word of God says. That's what the inspired Holy Spirit said there. I don't think any human being would ever come up with this anyway. Man, we need to think about that and process that. Do we want God's glory more than our own pleasure and comfort and purpose and ideas? Wow. There's another facet of God's plan and purpose to save some. The third facet, and that is that God has made a provision to remove sin. Okay, this, is, this, was, this was heavy. But now we see the mercy. Now we see the, 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 the joy. God has provided a way for people to come close to God. We don't have to stay in that place of vessels of wrath and destruction. We can completely avoid all exercise of God's wrath in our lives. We can have our sins completely forgiven and removed. We can, we can experience his mercy. One commentator said that God delights far more in his mercy than in his wrath. I'm not sure if that's true, but I sure do. I'm far more excited about his mercy than his wrath. And we can experience it. Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Our sins can be removed and forgiven. Isaiah 43, I I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. He is the Savior of, of the world. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Isaiah makes it clear that God is our Redeemer. God is our Savior. But when he removes our sin, he does it for his own sake. You see that? He... He's, we get the benefit. I mean, when God takes my sin away, I benefit from it, but he removes my sin for his sake, for his purpose, so he can save a people to fulfill his good purpose and plan. That's mercy. That's grace. Is anybody excited about that? Gosh, you guys, wake up. I know you're still in the heavies back there. I'm sorry. I didn't give you a chance to process that. If you're listening to the podcast, stop here, go back and process that for a few years, and then come back and and finish the sermon. But then Isaiah starts talking about a suffering servant, this person who was abused and beaten. We know in hindsight that he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about our Savior, he's talking about God himself. Uh, We know that this was an amazing description of what Jesus suffered in order to save us, in order to free us from the exercise of God's wrath, so we don't have to experience it. Uh, Look at Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. None of us seeks God on our own. God must initiate the salvation process because we just wander away. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us, of us all. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You got that? The Father is sovereign, and it was the Father's sovereign will and purpose for Jesus to be crushed and crucified and killed. That was God's sovereign plan. This was no accident. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus has made provision for all humanity to be saved. He paid the once for all price for our sin, and now anyone that wants can come and receive his gift and be saved. Amen? Absolutely. We should be cheering and screaming like it was a football game. But those of you that are following this and thinking about this, you said, I, I thought you just said that he chooses those whom he will save, and it's not everyone. So how can you say that anyone that wants to can come? Good, I'm glad you're thinking like that. Well, I did say that, and God does choose. But he also purposed that everyone, anyone who places their faith in Christ alone for salvation will be saved. It's incomprehensible. It's unexplainable how this works. But it does. And this is the last facet of this gorgeous, complex diamond of God's plan. We can believe and accept this provision of salvation. The fact is that this redemption, this salvation by grace, is offered to everyone and anyone. In, in Romans chapter 10, Paul references Isaiah 28 when he says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will be saved, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same as Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in verse 13, uh, Paul's quoting Joel. Peter says the same thing in Acts 2 when he's preaching. It, he, he quotes Joel 2 also. And he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, anyone. Okay, let's, let's try to understand this incomprehensible truth. This is impossible to understand. Understanding is not the goal anyway. The goal is worship. The goal is whenever we, we hear this mystery, whenever we hear this tension, whenever we hear this complexity, we fall on our faces and say, holy, 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 you are so much bigger than me, I can't even begin to comprehend this, but I worship you, and I'm glad you are so much bigger than me. The offer of salvation to anyone and everyone is absolutely legitimate and real. But only those whom God has chosen will respond and accept it. And everyone God has chosen will respond. But those who don't respond, and they don't respond because they were not chosen, 
will be held accountable for their not accepting and receiving, and they'll be judged for not responding by spending eternity in the lake of fire. And those who respond will never feel like they were forced to respond. And those who don't respond will never feel like they were stonewalled. No one will ever come to Jesus repentant and broken over their sin, believing he is the only way to salvation, and hear him say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't choose you. You, you can't get saved. You, you're, you, I didn't choose you. No, that's not how it works. Anyone who repents, anyone who confesses, anyone who accepts Jesus as their Savior will be saved. It's like we're looking at it from our perspective, and then we go up here and look at it from God's perspective. Since we're not God, we, we, we got to come up here for a little bit, but keep living here. Paul knows exactly how we will respond to this. He, we will say, how can you blame me, God? How can you hold me accountable when you didn't even choose me to salvation? That's not fair. That's not right. So Paul responds. Verse 19, he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Don't blame me. It's not my fault. Because if God's chosen or not chosen, that's it. That's the end of, that's the, end of the story. But he references Isaiah 45. That's the second text there um, in Romans to, to answer this. We saw Isaiah 45 a little bit ago, but Paul kind of summarizes it. He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is an irreconcilable clash of truths that we will never understand. It's a mystery. It's a tension that we cannot resolve, and we need to be okay with that. We need to live in the struggle. There's an example of this tension in Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching, and he says, to the crowd, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You got that? Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God decreed it in God's sovereign uh, decree. This is what's going to happen. This Jesus who was delivered up according to God's plan, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Jesus Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here's the tension. The crucifixion was de determined by the sovereign plan of God. But God killed Jesus. God crucified Jesus. Jesus was crucified on the cross by using wicked people who would now have to give an account for what they did, even though God decreed it would happen. <clears throat> blisters on the brain. Can't get it. Now, the cool part is Peter is preaching this. The people realize what they have done, and, and they responded. Their hearts were softened to the truth. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. They did, and 3,000 people were saved that day. Now, we have no idea whose heart 
God has softened and whose heart he has hardened. We have no idea whom he has chosen and whom he has not chosen. We don't, th- those, those things are way too lofty for us. We might think someone is hardened, but God is at work to soften. I read an article this week about a man who was in gangs. He spent seven uh, stints in prison, hard, hard, hard. God got a hold of him and saved him. So what do we do? We go and we share the good news of Jesus with everyone and anyone, all over, wherever, knowing that God will save those he's called. Like Isaiah, we are sent to go. Isaiah, God says, who will go? Who will go spread the word? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And that's what, that should be our response. Here am I, send me, send me, God. Christian made this great statement a couple of weeks ago. To be saved by Jesus is to be sent by Jesus. And so we go and we tell. And God will bring to himself those he will bring to himself. That takes the pressure off, doesn't it? I don't have to save anybody. I just got to get the good news out there. And those who are prepared and softened will hear. So here's these four facets of this beautiful, complex truth of salvation. There's a problem. God must initiate salvation. He's made a provision to remove sin, and we can believe and accept this provision of salvation. Wow. Multiple thousands of volumes and words have been written about this topic, and we just solved it in 40 minutes. That's amazing. These are hard truths. We should wrestle with them. We should study them. We should discuss them. We should debate them. But know that there will always be a mystery. There will always be a tension. There will always be frustrating parts of this that we won't get. But let's bring it down out of the high and lofty heavenly places for just a minute. Forget all the complexities of it for a moment and understand that the truth is that the offer of salvation is genuinely extended to anyone and everyone. We must believe and accept that we are sinful and totally separated from a high and holy God. We must believe and accept that Jesus is the Savior, the only Savior. There is no other way of salvation. We must believe and accept that everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That includes every single person in this room and every single person in the world. That includes you. And this morning, if God is calling, if you sense that, we've got guys up here in the prayer room after the service that'll, that'll pray with you. Talk to someone you know. Even for those of us that have already placed our faith in Jesus for salvation, we've got to believe and accept that we have this ongoing need for his mercy, for the saving work of Jesus. It's not a once for all done and finished. It's a lifetime of following him. And let me just say, these these doctrinal arguments from Isaiah and from Paul should make us just shut our mouths and fall on our face and worship a supreme, sovereign, holy Savior, God. And God, we do. We thank you for the complexities of these truths, the mystery of it. Thank you that there is no way we can understand all that you have done and all that you have revealed and all that you are. And, and Lord, it just, it just makes us go, wow, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Oh, Jesus, open our minds, open our hearts. 
Let us be willing to live in the mystery even as we continue to study and explore. But let us worship. In Jesus' name, amen.